0: All right, so the title of our message this morning is Christ First, Others Next. We find ourselves going through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We did an introduction study two weeks ago to the book of Philippians. Last week we covered chapter 1. This week we will go through 30 verses in chapter 2. And wow, just what an interesting... Uh, book. I've never taught the book of Philippians. This is my first time teaching it. And as you teach it, you you usually go in a little deeper than if you're just reading it and, and looking at it and glancing over it. I've heard studies on Philippians, but to be able to teach it is definitely a blessing. And so the theme of the book of Philippians we learned is joy. And we have to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, where is your joy barometer? If if it was like a gas tank, where where are you at in joy? And then number two question you have to ask yourself is, do I want joy? Because it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost, and it's uh, a very uh, heavy cost on, on your part. Jesus paid it all, but it's going to come at a very heavy cost on your part, and you're going to see that today. Because everything within us and everything that is in the world contradicts this message. And, and we would think that if we were to make this a reality in our life, it sure wouldn't come about the way the Bible is teaching us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love letter. Lord, we thank you for your word. And may God be true and every man a liar as we see within the pages of scripture this morning your remedy, your recipe for the fruit of the spirit that is joy in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would even be desiring and open to hear from you. And so bless this time that we have together, Lord, as we lift it up to you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. In Philippians 1, the theme was Christ first. The secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind. We saw Paul incarcerated in Rome, imprisoned, and yet we saw that he had not put his struggles, his dilemmas, his sufferings, his misunderstanding and notions of what was going on in his life. He didn't elevate that to first. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we see that in the midst of circumstances, the key to joy is going to be Christ first. But in then we're going to see today in chapter 2, others need to go next. And again, this goes against everything that is within us. What? I need to put others above me? Well, yeah, that's exactly what Philippians chapter 2 is going to show us and teach us. And so we're going to see that the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. And so chapter 1 was the single mind. Chapter 2 is going to be the submissive mind. Uh, such a bad word in our culture, Submit, submissive, is it not? In Ephesians chapter 5, before God gives instructions to the wives as their role within a marriage to submit under their husbands, who is the head of the home, Before that instructions, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And so we are to mutually submit to one another within that relationship. But submissive or submit, such a bad word, but yet Jesus or God is teaching in this chapter that the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. Let me read it to you. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We have a tendency to say that the heart is the seat of the emotions, the center of our beings. But here in Jeremiah chapter 17... The heart and the mind are synonymous. The heart as being the center of our being is our mind and our thought life and what we're doing in the innermost part of our being. And then it goes on to say, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And once again, this is important because if I were to figure out how I can be joyful or happy in life, I would think that the remedy and the recipe for that is to be self-absorbed, to look out for number one, to make sure that I'm getting mine, to make sure that I'm not being mistreated or marginalized or put down. And if I do all of those things and I make sure that I'm looking out for me, then joy would be the byproduct of that. And the Bible is screaming, no, it's not. The Bible would declare that the most miserable people the most selfish people and if all we do was internalize and turn inward and look at how to meet or gratify our needs then we wouldn't default to getting it right because we would default to our wicked hearts and the bible is clearly declaring that our hearts are deceitful and wicked above what we can even figure out and so without something like philippians chapter 2 given to us Guys, we wouldn't default to figuring this stuff out. We look to the Lord and we have to ask that question that I said, do I want joy? Do I really want to be joyful? Because what Philippians 2 is screaming against everything that we know and it's going against everything that we see in the world and everything that we've been taught, it's saying that you need to put others above yourself. What? (laughs) That's anathema. That's a curse. Are you serious? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at it. Paul is going to give us four examples in chapter 2. These four examples of the submissive mind, he's going to show in verses 1 through 11, Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 18, Paul himself. Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And then finally, he's going to end with Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. Epaphroditus, by the way, is the one who would bring this letter to the church in Philippi. He was with Paul in Rome, and Paul would uh, pray for him. He would be healed. He was at the point close to death, but he would be healed, and then he just wanted to serve God. And through that, Paul was able to commission him to take the letter. There was also an offering involved where Paul um, was able to through the church of Philippi, uh, get money to the church in Jerusalem. And so all of that was done through the hands of Epaphroditus. In case you never heard of the name Epaphroditus. I like saying it. Uh, If I had a son, I'd name him Epaphroditus. My wife would say, no, you ain't. (laughs) So our first example is Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. We're going to go through the whole chapter. I'll comment a little, and then we'll come back to... The middle section, um, and man, there's just so much. So much. After chapter 1, verse 1 in chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so, two things were happening in this church in Philippi that Paul is addressing. And you can see that there's a, a structure of unity within these verses. Be careful to be like minded. Don't put yourself above somebody else. Be careful to do that. Maintain the unity within the body. And so, as he's doing that, we have to understand that the backdrop to that is there was something from within outside that was trying to disrupt the unity inside the church in Philippi. And Paul addressed that in chapter one, where he said, Hey, there's these guys, they're haters with me, and they're preaching Christ for the wrong reasons with wrong motives, but I don't care because Christ is being preached. And so they were trying from the outside to disrupt the unity. But again, Paul didn't care because he had put Christ first. He had elevated Christ to number one. And so he said, you know what? Their motives might be wrong, but Christ is being preached. And if Christ is being preached, then I'm going to stand out of the way and I'm going to let them do that. But this group was trying to disrupt the unity. There are also two sisters. He's going to mention them in chapter four. In verse two, in chapter four, he says, I implore... I don't know what that is, Udea, Eudia, yeah, whatever. And Syntyche, two ladies, again, they were as well trying to disrupt the unity. There was something going on within the church, and there was a squabble, there was an argument or something with these two. And so within, again, the unity was trying to be disrupted as well. And so Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful. We want the unity to be maintained within the fellowship, within the body of Christ. Be careful with that. And how do we do that? Verse 3, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition let me... or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests others there was a time in my walk with the Lord where I found this verse very difficult I just didn't understand it esteem others better than yourself but I told God God how do I do that when others aren't better than me I don't say it proudly but it's a reality And I would look at people and I would look at their lives and I would look at the struggles that they were going through and I would look at the difficulties that they were having or I would look at the fact that they didn't even know God and they were bound by substances or struggling with things in their life, things that I wasn't struggling with. And I said, Lord, how do I see others better than myself when they're not better than me? And little by little, the Lord began to unravel and teach me. Johnny, the way you do that is you recognize that everybody has something to teach you. That you don't know everything. That you may look at somebody's life and you may have an opinion about where they're at. But if you were to talk to them long enough, you would begin to understand why their struggle. You would be be able to understand why they're in the situation that they are. And that there's, no matter what, in all the earth, everybody has something to teach you. You don't know everything, number one, and everybody has something to teach you. And so as I began to understand that and talk to people and get behind their lives and their struggles and what they were going through, I did begin to realize, wow, I'd probably be doing the same thing in that same struggle if I had that same background and what you've gone through. And there's something to be taught there. And so we need to elevate others as better than ourselves because everybody has something to teach us. Andrew Murray defines humility and he says, the humble person is not one who thinks meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. And I think we have a misunderstanding of what humility is. We think humility humility is maybe self-defecation. We put ourselves down. We hold ourselves down. Somebody gives us a compliment. Oh, no, no, not me. Uh Uh-uh, no way. Uh Uh-uh. That's not humility. That's false pride. And so the thing that low self-esteem and high self-esteem have in common is self. Low self-esteem is equally prideful as high self-esteem because the focus is self. It's others-oriented. It's putting others above you. It's not even to think of you. And the interesting thing about humility is when you think you've got it, you've lost it. Yeah, I'm humble. Yeah, no, you're not. You just mentioned you. (laughs) You're not humble when you're thinking of you. Humility is not to think of self. And I think that's what Paul is showing us here in these first, first four verses. The key verse to this would be Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given to me, To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one, a measure of faith. Don't think higher of yourself than you ought to. Think soberly. Have a sobriety in in yourself. You're not what you used to be. You're not what you're going to be. It should be the idea of self. I find it interesting as I study psychology, um... Abraham Maslow came up with this idea of doing something different than Sigmund Freud did and all of the fathers of psychology before him. Before all of these guys would look at, especially Sigmund Freud, would look at people who were struggling in life, people who were pathological in their weaknesses, and they would study these types of people and they would come up with their theories in psychology. Abraham Maslow did something different entirely. He took a group of people who were healthy, they were sober in their thinking, they were happy, they were well-adjusted, and he studied those people. Let me read you a quote that I found. Abraham Maslow, one of the giant thinkers of the 20th century, brought a radical shift of perspective to psychology and began an entirely new approach to therapy, as he realized the importance for persons to find purpose outside of themselves. Since Freud, practitioners in the field of psychology and psychiatry were oriented toward the pathological. They studied sick people, dysfunctional persons. Maslow took the opposite approach, studying people who were vitally alive and fully functioning, radiantly happy, whole persons. In the process, he developed a theory called self-actualization and described a person whom he designated self-actualized. In his search for the secret of self-actualization, he wrote, quote, Without exception, I found that every person who was sincerely happy, radiantly alive, was living for a purpose or cause beyond himself. A secular, Bankrupt, spiritually speaking, atheist came up with this idea that people who are really happy are living for something outside of themselves. It goes on to say Maslow's discovery had been a great blessing for the cause of mental and emotional wholeness. It is a wonder he named. It is no wonder he named Jesus as a fully actualized person. A quote from the, uh, the preacher's commentary. As we go on in this chapter, we're going to see why. Notice in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This section of scripture is deep and rich in meaning, but we see Jesus as the ultimate in an example of somebody who lived the way that we are supposed to live as he was on earth. And it flies in the face of everything that we see. It it goes against even what ourselves want to maybe pull in for life or, or accomplish in life. Jesus humbled himself, he made himself of no reputation the word in the Greek is kenosis and it's a great doctrine and it means that Jesus emptied himself of his prerogative of being God, Jesus the king of kings, the lord of lords came out of his throne in heaven and came to dwell on earth, how did he do it? look at his humble beginnings, look at what he went through look at how he did it a zygote a one-celled creature placed in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He could have done it any way he wanted to, but that's how he chose to do it. A census just so happens to go out during that time where everybody needs to go back to their homeland. Joseph, being from Egypt, needs to go back to Egypt. Because of the census, there's no room at any hotel, any inn, any place to say, where does Jesus when he's born? In a manger, In a feeding trough for animals. We see the manger at Christmas and we think it's this pristine, clean thing. It's nothing like that. The King of Kings is born in these humble, poor circumstances. Could have been born in the palace, was he? No, he's born in a manger. Humble beginnings, questionable parents. We see the virgin birth, we recognize the scriptures. Mary would proclaim that she had relations with no man. Where did this pregnancy come from, Mary, the Holy Spirit? Who bought it? Who believed it? Nobody in his time. Jesus was considered a bastard child. Who would the father be? They wouldn't know. You look at what Jesus did. You look at his life. You look at the example that he set for us. All throughout his life, it flies in the face of everything that we're taught. If I want to be something, if I want to win a kingdom, if I want to win people, if I want to have joy and peace. If I want to live a life of love and and self-control and all of these fruits of the Spirit that I so desire and long for deep within me, if I want them, I got to make them happen. I got to go after them. I got to be the one that makes sure that I put myself and elevate myself and put myself first and above. And Jesus flies in the face of all of that. And he's our ultimate example of that. In the kenosis, where Jesus emptied himself, he laid aside his prerogative to be God as he was in human form. He never stopped being God, but he laid aside his prerogative and he showed us through his example how we are to live by being dependent upon the Father for everything that he would do in the power of the Holy Spirit for everything that he would do. And so we have no excuse if we are not walking in obedience to what the Father is calling us to, in the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus did it as an example for us: walking on water, raising the dead, healing the blind, curing the sick. Everything that He did, He laid aside his prerogative to be God. That's what this doctrine teaches. It's gigantic. Because we look at Jesus and we say, oh, I mean, that, was, that was Jesus, right? You know, it's going, that was Jesus. Jesus was hearing from the Father. In John chapter 17, he says, I always do that which pleases the Father. We don't always do that which pleases our Father. We take the bull by the horns. We take control of our lives. We say, if it is to be, it's up to me. And Jesus and the Bible is an absolute contradiction to that mindset. We need to submit to the will of the Father by saying, Lord, I need to put others above myself. That's what Jesus did. As we move on, he shows us the example of Timothy. We're going to come back to that, and we'll close with that example of Jesus. But let's look at verses 12 through... No, no, no. The example of Paul is next, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes. And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so, Paul, who we saw in chapter 1, placed Christ first is here placing others second. And he mentions it right here. I am being poured out like a drink. My life is coming to an end, but I'm putting you first. I'm putting your needs above mine. I'm putting you above me. And what is the result? Joy. When I put you above me, I receive joy. That's what Paul is saying. Two of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, 12 13 work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure you have this sovereignty of God thing working with the the responsibility of man the free will of man and and they're they're right there in those two verses responsibility of man hey work out your own salvation with fear and trembling not work for your salvation Work out your own salvation. Take responsibility for your life. Be obedient to what God is calling you to. We have opinions about what people should be doing. Have an opinion about what you should be doing. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then the very next verse, the sovereignty of God. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is giving me the ability and the desire to get it done. In chapter 1, verse 6, he said, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. How? He's given me the ability and the desire to get it done. And I have a response to that. I need to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Timothy is our next example, starting at verse 19. It goes on to say, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel, therefore I hope to send him to you at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. And so there was a hope on Paul's side that he would still maybe be delivered, but he wasn't sure. And so for that, he was going to send Timothy. Why? Timothy was the only one that stuck by him. Everyone else deserted him. Everyone else left him. And so in the midst of that, he's taking the one guy who stuck with him, who encouraged him, who blessed him, who ministered to him, and he says, I'm going to put you guys first. I'm going to send them to you. He was profitable for me, but I'm putting you above me. I'm going to send Timothy to you so that he can minister to you. Guys, the mindset is just so counter what we do. His last example is Epaphroditus, starting at verse 25. He says, yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And so Paul would send Epaphroditus. He would send him with the offering to Jerusalem. He would send him with the letter to this church in Philippi, and we would see that take place. And again, Paul is thinking of others above himself. Now, As we look at this idea of putting others first, joy as an acronym, Jesus, Others, Yourself, we'll see in chapter 3 that he puts himself. He begins to talk about himself, mention himself, Paul. And so the remedy, the recipe for joy is Jesus, Others, Yourself. As he's esteeming others as better than himself, as we are called to place others than ourselves... Uh, above ourselves, we see that this runs throughout the scriptures. I'm going to read you a few verses and we'll close. But if you look at the world and what the world says and what the world elevates the world is, if anything is going to be, it's up to me. If, if, If I'm going to be taken care of, I got to look out for number one, numero uno. I got to make sure that I'm looked out for, my needs are looked out for. And yet the Bible doesn't teach that. And so the world system and the world structure is set up that way, but the Bible contradicts or flies in the face of that type of living. For us as Christians, that when we ask the question, do I want want joy? Do I want to see joy as a product in my life, as something that is emanating from my life? Or do I want to live in the misery that I currently live in? Because you can keep that. You can maintain that. You can have that. And God's not going to force you. But at some point, you got to come to grips with, you might know a lot of things, but you don't know more than God. You haven't got this thing of life figured out better than God does, the creator of life. And so at some point, by faith, we've got to say, you know Lord? Yeah. Yeah, I want this. I want to experience this in my life. I want to know what your joy is all about. I've got to put others before myself. I've got to elevate the needs of others above my own needs because that's what you're commanding me to do. That's exactly what you're saying right here. And again, it it just doesn't make sense in our brains, does it? Our brains say, I got to look out for me. But God is saying, no, look out for others. You'll notice it in a conversation. I see a conversation like a tennis match, a tennis game. So I have the ball and the racket in my hand, bounce the ball on the floor, knock it over the court. Person gets it and the ball is the conversation, represents a conversation that I could have with a person. And so I talk, I say, hey, how are you doing? I hit the ball. They grab the ball and so many people do well with the ball. They put it in their pocket, and then they talk to you in a monologue, no longer a dialogue. No longer is there an exchange between two people having a conversation. It now has become, thanks for the ball, and they talk. And then they go, thanks, I feel so much better, and then they walk away. Huh, what's that? thought we were having a conversation. Man, I just asked you one question, and you just took that to town. You never stopped, and then you walked away. Hey, I'm doing okay, too. All right, see you later. Well, maybe somebody else will dialogue with me. Maybe somebody else will not have a monologue. And it's like, I got the microphone. (laughs) I'm not letting it go. Okay, we see it all the time. We see this thing. Why don't we have conversations? Why don't we have dialogues? because we're so stuck on self and what I'm struggling with and what I'm going through that I'm glad that I've got a set of ears in front of me to be able to get it off my chest. And God is saying, live in your misery. Go ahead and stay miserable, but you're not going to experience my supernatural joy until you begin to be vested in people. And can't you tell when somebody genuinely cares? Can't you tell? You can tell when somebody looks you in the eye. When the second or third time you actually have a conversation with somebody, they're able to bring back, "Hey, remember that last thing you said? Hey, how are you doing with that? Remember that thing we prayed for? Remember that thing you had mentioned you were struggling with? Hey, the Lord gave me a verse for you." And you're like, "Wow, this person genuinely cares. This person isn't just stuck on self, but it's lost. It's very rare that you find that, isn't it? And then that's sad. It's very rare that you find that in the church. Isn't that pathetic?" people are so stuck on self, and they can't get out of self long enough to be genuinely interested in another human being that is struggling. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to read you a few scriptures, we'll close. But in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 1, the Bible says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What? That's different. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Give me a kid. Give me a little four or five-year-old. And what does this little four and five-year-old have? This little four or five-year-old is trusting and humble. Trusting and humble. This little kid will take God at his word. They just trust. Don't they just trust? Trust. They don't lay awake at night thinking, oh my God, I hope my mom and dad paid the electric bill because I don't know if there's going to be lights on in the morning. I'm so worried. They just trust. They don't even think about that. Do they think about Does a four or five-year-old think about that? They trust. I hope there's going to be refrigerator, food in the refrigerator. No, they, they parents fed me yesterday. Parents are going to feed me today. Probably going to be fed tomorrow. They don't even think about it. It's a simple trust, isn't it? And yet we begin to grow up and we somehow begin to be educated and gain in knowledge and all of a sudden we know better. Do we really? Jesus is saying you need to be a child, like a child, simple trust. Can you take God at his word? A child would, right? If you told a child, set him up here and you say, come on, jump, I'll catch you. (laughs) All right, woo! simple trust, simple trust. And the other thing is there's a humility in children. They're not worried. I remember my daughters with little, at a stage, you get to a point where you let them dress themselves. Woo, wow, yeah. They're not thinking at four years old once again, oh my gosh, this outfit so clashes. People are going to be talking about me. No, they're not. They're just thinking I'm rocking my boots and I got a bikini on. I ain't worried about it. Woo, bikini and boots, Right? they're just grabbing whatever humility they're not thinking of themselves they're not stuck on self it's just a simple humility where it's just they're just living life and somehow again we get older and we lose that simplicity of trusting and we begin to get prideful and think of self all the time in Matthew chapter 20 verse 25 through 27 the bible says but Jesus called them to himself and said You know that the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them? Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now either Jesus is telling the truth or Jesus is lying. And I'm going to bank that Jesus is telling the truth. And he's saying if I want to be first in his kingdom in his economy, from his perspective, the way he sees things, then I don't need to rise up in the level of ministry to where everyone begins to serve me. But if I want to be great in the kingdom, then I got to look for opportunities to serve people. And I either believe that or I don't. And the proof of belief is what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my 24 7 I'm either serving people or I'm not. And if I'm not, then I'm either making God a liar or I will be found out in heaven. It'll come to fruition. And again, guys, this is the key to joy. The key to joy. Last scripture, Luke 6.31, the Bible says, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. I've really tried to live my Christian life by this scripture. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Simple. Simple. What do you like? What do you want? What would you appreciate? How would you appreciate somebody coming at you and talking to you? All of that. What would you like to eat? Would you like to be the first or the last? Would you like to be the one that goes ahead or wait? then let other people do that. What are those things that are within you that you would like? Then do that for other people. And if we do that, I think, again, we're elevating others above ourselves. That's a way that we can elevate others above ourselves to just think in terms of, well, I would, I would appreciate that. We would take, um, when we would go to the, the Mexican orphanage, we, we used to sponsor a Mexican orphanage At Calvary Chapel Downey. And when we would go to the orphanage, we would uh, take the kids' stuff. You know, sometimes they had 30 kids, sometimes they had 50 kids. And so we would take uh, the kids' shoes and clothes and things, and junk. People would donate junk. Like stuff that would go in the trash can. Holes and shoes that are busted and just... And I would think, why are you going to give to somebody something you wouldn't want, something you wouldn't wear. Why would you do that? Who are you helping out? And, and again, do unto others as you would have done unto you. If somebody came to your house and gave your kids a gift, you want, to, you want to give your kids busted shoes, shirts that are all holy and soiled and stained and just junk? No. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. And just as you think about this upside-down world that we live in and this upside-down approach to this upside-down world that God would have us to dwell in, we have to come to the place where we ask, have I gotten so educated, so smart, so full of knowledge that I know better than God, and I'm going to figure this thing called life out, and I'm going to contradict the very things that God is saying. God is saying, do you want to experience joy? Then put Jesus first, And others second. And you will experience supernaturally something that you couldn't on your own. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word so slaps us, Lord, in the face at times. In the contradicting way of the world. Lord, we see that the rulers of the world rule over. But, Lord, we are called to be your servants. And, Lord, you gave us an example. You washed the disciples' feet. What an incredible thing. And then you commended us to do likewise, to serve one another. And so, Father, I pray that this would be the testimony of our lives. I pray that it wouldn't be lip service. I pray that when people question our lives, that the only question they would have is, who do we serve? And we can point them to you. Father, and this is how our light is to shine in the world that men would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so may we be the salt of the earth, Lord, the preserving agent, the ones that are making this world thirsty for the things of God. And Lord, this is how you have delineated that we are to do that. Strengthen us, Lord, where we're weak. Clear our minds where we have strongholds, misunderstandings, lies that have penetrated our lives through the world's philosophies. Through even our selfish ambitions, Lord, may we walk in humility, placing others and their needs above our very own, and glorifying you in the process, and as a byproduct, receiving the joy that only you can give, in Jesus' name, amen.